most often what we do at this church is we work our way through books of the Bible. And we just start at the first verse of the first chapter and just make our way through however long it takes. What we're doing the, this morning is looking at the sixth commandment, which is part of a 10-week mini-series that we're doing on the Ten Commandments, one on each of the commandments. We just finished Ephesians, and I'm going to keep you in suspense as to what book we'll be covering next, but I've got some commentaries coming in little by little in the mail, and so we'll kind of resume with that approach uh, probably early next year. But we are in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments, and we're focusing on this because the Ten Commandments serve for us as a summary of God's law. God said in the Scriptures that the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And He said that all the other laws and commandments can be summed up in those two things, which is absolutely correct, of course. But what we find is that the way that the Ten Commandments are referred to elsewhere in Scripture, for example, Romans 13, uh, Luke chapter 10, especially compared with Luke chapter 18, we find that the Ten Commandments are also put forward to us in the Scripture as a summary of God's law. And so you could almost visualize God's law like a pyramid. There's all kinds of laws and commandments at the bottom. A whole bunch of imperatives in Scripture, things that we're to obey. All of these things could be summed up in the next level up of the pyramid, which would be the Ten Commandments. The first four summarize our duty toward God, particularly love for God. And the last six summarize our duty towards our neighbor, particularly love for neighbor. Then the top level of the pyramid is this high-level summary, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is kind of where the Ten Commandments fit as we think about God's law. And so because we want to live lives that are pleasing to God, we want to know what it is that pleases God. What does God require of us? And so studying God's law is helpful to us in this respect. It will be helpful to remember at the outset that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, by works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. So how many people will be justified by works of the law? Not one. So if your approach to a study of God's law is, I'm going to find out what God requires so that I can obey it and keep it and earn my way to heaven, you're barking up the wrong tree. Because no one will be justified by works of the law. This is because even hypothetically, even hypothetically if we could stop sinning today, we sinned yesterday. We sinned the day before and the day before. And we've just been compounding guilt and guilt and guilt and guilt. And what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not all the law keeping that you could muster up for the rest of your life. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But having had our sins washed away by the blood of Jesus, having been reconciled to God, not by our law-keeping, but by Christ's law-keeping for us, having been reconciled to God and put in right standing through Christ Jesus, we then want to live lives that are obedient and pleasing to God. God becomes our daddy, so to speak, in and through Christ Jesus. This is... A rough translation of the word Abba, Father. It's a very familiar term, a term of love and endearment. We, we come into this relationship with God as our Father when we are reconciled to Him through Christ Jesus. And coming into His family, we don't want to dishonor Him. We don't want to displease Him. We don't want a strained relationship with our dad, so to speak. We want good family relationships. We don't get in the family by law-keeping, but law-keeping is a way of loving, honoring, glorifying, and enjoying the relationship that we now have with God our Father through Christ Jesus. So this is the context of what we're doing. And this morning we're looking at the sixth commandment, which is found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Simple as that. Now, we might think that we haven't murdered or we're not really in danger of murdering because maybe you never killed anyone with a gun or you never stabbed someone to death or strangled the life out of them, nor have you been close to doing that, nor have you even felt seriously like doing that. 
And so you think, okay, this is easy. At least I got one out of the ten locked down. Well, we need to remember the broad sense of God's law. As our brother read for us earlier in the service, Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5 that the prohibition against murder in the Ten Commandments covers a whole category of sins, which includes even our heart disposition towards others. So, in this prohibition against murder, this is the totality of what's prohibited. Not only murder itself, explicit outward murder of extinguishing someone else's physical life, but also ungrounded and or excessive anger and any unwarranted and therefore unjust actions proceeding from this anger. Ungrounded anger is prohibited. Here's a biblical example of ungrounded anger. And the king of Israel, that was Ahab at the time, said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imla, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 8. The evil king hates God's prophet because God's prophet always tells him about God's judgment, the truth about God's judgment. That's ungrounded anger. Sometimes we get angry at people for a bad reason. There's no legitimate reason why we're angry at them. Just as there's no legitimate reason to be angry at someone who tells you the truth about what God says, what God's Word is. There's no legitimate reason to be angry there. So that's just an example. Now here's a biblical example of excessive anger, which is also prohibited. In Genesis 34, we read about a man named Shechem who sleeps with Dinah, which is one of Jacob's children. It seems that it was probably uh, rape, that she was not complicit in this. And so in Genesis chapter 34 and verse 7, we read about the reaction of Dinah's brothers. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. Okay, so there's just grounds for this anger. But as we go on to read, it becomes an excessive anger and then leads to unwarranted actions. As we go on and read in this chapter, we read this. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. They asked that Shechem would now be able to marry Dinah. And the sons of Jacob answered deceitfully. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Because you'll remember the Abrahamic covenant. God commanded Abraham that him and his posterity after him should be circumcised. So this is what they're talking about here. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. The words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let, us, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will, be, they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised who went out of the city of his gate. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. 
They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Now in case you're still not sure whether that was unjustified, Jacob prophesies later on in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, and he says this, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be joined not to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So what you see is that they had excessive anger. They had righteous grounds to be angry in the first place, but they allowed it to become excessive, and then they took unwarranted action. So unwarranted action in that case was repaying evil with evil. Unwarranted action could also be like what was read early in the service from Matthew chapter 5, even insults. So this commandment is broad. It doesn't just prohibit the extinguishing of someone else's life. It prohibits ungrounded anger, unfounded anger. And it also prohibits excessive anger. And it prohibits the unwarranted words and actions that flow from that type of anger. So when we think about this, we realize that actually we have all broken this commandment. Now the opposite of what is prohibited is implicitly commanded in all of the Ten Commandments. So, for example, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, what is implicitly commanded is, I shall be your God. It wouldn't do to just say, well, I have no idols, but I don't worship the one true God, therefore I obeyed the first commandment. Same as it wouldn't be obedient to the seventh commandment, as we're looking at next week, not to commit adultery. It wouldn't be obedient to the heart, the spirit of that commandment, to just refrain from sleeping with people that you're not married to, but be a terrible husband to her. Implicit in this is the integrity of marriage. Or implicit in the first commandment, as I referred to a moment ago, is the integrity of worship. And so in the Sixth Commandment, we're talking about the importance of life, the value of life. Don't extinguish it unjustly, rather implicitly preserve it. Wilhelmus Abraco, who was a Dutch theologian a couple of centuries ago, said, The virtues enjoined in this commandment are the following. Love for life. Tolerance. Seeking after and the preservation of peace. Meekness. Compassion. And friendliness. So until we cultivate those virtues, we're not yet obeying the sixth commandment. Abrakel also says that this commandment should make us like a sandy beach upon which tempestuous waves break and then gently flow away. Which I think is a good mental picture for the kind of disposition that we ought to have. People may come angry to us like tempestuous waves. But our personality is such that they break against us and then just turn and gently go away. We think about that proverb, a harsh word stirs up anger, but a soft answer turns away wrath. So we don't go causing trouble, certainly. We don't go out with murderous intent. But even when trouble comes looking for us, we're more likely to diffuse and de-escalate situations than to contribute our own sinful anger to the problem. So that's kind of an overview. Let's think a little bit more deeply about this. Let's go another layer deeper as we think about this. Ways we can murder. Abraco in his commentary gives us 12 different ways that we can murder. And he, he pretty much exhausts it. He talks, about, he talks about poison in the cup and setting traps for people and all of these ways that we can murder. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not so much going for the exhaustive list in that sense, but I do want to think about a few ways that are pertinent to us. One would be actual murder, whether it's with poison, whether it's with a gun, whether it's with a knife, whether it's with our bare hands. That kind of intentional, actual, obvious, outward, malicious intent murder. And we shouldn't just gloss over this as if nobody does that because people do that. So we read about it in the newspaper from time to time about gun violence or this or that. 
Obviously, this is prohibited by God's law. But consider also abortion. This is one that doesn't get a lot of coverage under this category. We talk about a woman's right to choose, or we talk about the right to life, or we use all these euphemisms to talk about these things. But to kill a tiny human being is just as bad as to kill a big human being. To kill a young human being is just as wrong as to kill an old human being. So when you think about it, the question really is, is it a human life in the womb or is it not? And if the answer is yes, then uh, then your view on abortion becomes really, or the biblical view on abortion, I should say, becomes really obvious. You're no more justified to kill a tiny and young human life than you are to take a wet pillow and strangle an elderly person or suffocate an elderly person in their bed. Both are murder. Whether big or small, murder. Whether young or old, murder. That's one that is probably a lot more relevant to us. There are likely people even here who perhaps have committed an abortion or know somebody very close to you who has. We need to recognize that this is sin. This is prohibited by God's Word. There's forgiveness for sin, which is why we're here today and not simply despairing at home. But we do need to recognize it as sin. And here's one. Alright, food and drink. All the Puritans touch food and drink under the prohibition of murder. Which is interesting. Because that's one we don't touch on a lot. We touch on alcohol, maybe. We're, in this church, we don't believe that having a drink is a sin. Some Christians take a really strong line, though, and they want to preach about no drinking whatsoever. And they touch that one a lot. But I, I've never heard a sermon against sugary drinks. Alright? But listen, sugary drinks will kill you too. Right? And here's another one. Gluttony. Immoderate eating. When, you, when you're in a pattern of eating well beyond what your nutritional needs warrant. That's a sin also, and it causes all kinds of health problems. Right? Eating a poor diet. Neg- neglecting fruits and vegetables. Taking in all kinds of bad stuff in your diet. This is, this is also wrong. We need to think about this kind of stuff. We need to educate ourselves. I'm not a nutritionist, so I'm going gonna to stop there. But all I'm going to say is, it's not neither here nor there what we do with food and what we do with drink. It has moral implications, as the Puritans so helpfully remind us. Our culture of indulgence and autonomy would like to tell us otherwise. But really, again, are you harming yourself by what you put into your body? If so, you've got to think about that as sin. We've got, we got to steward our bodies well. Now, biblically, there is a place for feasting. Uh, so I think, and I think anything, as far as I understand it, we need... Well, you know what? I'm not a nutritionist, as I said, so I'm just going to stop there. But let me just say, let me just give the principle and leave you and your nutritionist to work it out, all right? But food and drink, we've got to think about, are we harming ourselves here? So these are some ways that we can kill our bodies. Perhaps you can think of some other applications. Unjust anger. This is a big one. We already talked about it. I gave you a couple of biblical examples. But search your soul. Search your heart. Where is there unjust anger? Where are you angry at someone for a wrong reason? An unfounded reason? Think about that. Pray about that. Ask the Lord to bring it to mind. There probably is someone because we're not, we are not the prototype of just dealings. We are, believe it or not, prone to injustice and unfairness in our views of others. So think about it. Take stock of your soul. Or excessive anger. Even if you have a legitimate reason to be angry with someone. Where are you letting it grow to an excessive level? 
Would it be disproportionate if you talked about, honestly, verbalized how angry you are with someone? Would it sound very reasonable and within bounds to the godly people around you? Or would you be ashamed to say it how angry you are out loud because it would sound excessive? That might be a good metric or a good test for us. But certainly if it's leading to unwarranted actions of vengeance, and that can be verbal as well as physical, certainly if it's leading to unwarranted actions, it has become excessive. So take stock. Anger is a big problem. It doesn't just affect non-Christians. It affects Christians too. It can come out in the way that we discipline our kids. We can get angry at our kids for a wrong reason. Or we can get... We can be righteously angry with our children, but then we can discipline them excessively for the righteous reason that we got angry in the first place. It can come out in the way that we deal with our co-workers or our employers. Perhaps you get vexed about something that happens at your job, and maybe it's even a legitimate thing, but you get excessively angry. You're brooding on it all morning or all afternoon. Or it leads you to treat your coworker or your supervisor in an ungodly way. Obviously, if you're taking an unwarranted action, behind that is an excess of anger. You're not keeping your anger within proper bounds. It can come out in the way that we deal with one another, even in the church. I'm going to tell you guys a little secret that I don't think anyone knows. But Christians can sin against each other. Christians can't hurt each other. You might actually be hurt in a church. Alright? This is, this is, obviously I say that facetiously because I think the opposite is true. We all know that. And so anger can happen even within the bounds of a church. Not only in your family, not only in your workplace, but even in the church. And sometimes it's unfounded. Sometimes just an inadvertent thing happened. Uh, and you take offense to it, nobody meant anything by it, but you start boiling. Or sometimes something legitimate happens. Someone really does sin against someone else. But instead of taking the prescribed action in Scripture and going to that person, trying to work it out with them, you take unwarranted action and begin trying to seek revenge, or to use your words to cut that person down a notch, or something like this. You start taking ungodly action. Anger can be a real big problem. And this falls under the category of murder, biblically speaking. Jesus teaches that in Matthew chapter 5. Just as we can do all of these things, from the outward physical murder to the anger, we can do this with ourselves as well. Not just with others, but with ourselves. Obviously, the outward would be suicide or self-harm. But even... Just a wrong kind of self-loathing. Which I'm not, I'm not talking about conviction of sin. I'm not talking about an honest and sober recognition of just how deep depravity runs in you. But we can, we can entertain an unbiblical kind of self-loathing that says less about us than the Scripture actually says about us. The Scripture tells us, for example, that all persons... Genesis 9 tells us this, as well as James chapter 3 that all persons retain something of the image of God in which we were created. All persons, whether Christians or non-Christians. Which means that there's a certain value and a certain worth to all persons. We begin to think either of ourselves or others less than that. We're entertaining a sinful kind of anger towards ourselves. So these are all ways to kill the body or to harm the body or to the anger, the angry thoughts towards one another. But here's, I want to draw out another aspect of this commandment. We are all more than bodies. We are not less than bodies. But we are more than bodies. This, what you see, this is really me. I'm not inside and this is just something incidental to who I am. This is incidental to who I am. 
because I might not be wearing this one tomorrow. But this is not incidental to who I am. God made us body and soul. 1 Corinthians 15 is quite clear that we await the resurrection of the body as well as enjoying the eternal life of the soul. Our bodies are who we are. We're not less than our bodies. But we are more than our bodies. And so as we think about the prohibition of murder, we have to think about more than just our bodies. We have to think about our souls. What does soul murder look like? Ultimately, propagating false religions is soul murder. Scripture tells us there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's popular this day and age to say, well, it's true for me, but it might not be true for you. Or, or to say all roads lead to the same place. Or all religions are superficially different, but fundamentally the same. These are things that you hear. But Jesus didn't say, I am a way. I am a truth, and I am a life. And Paul didn't say, or not Paul, I think it was Peter. The apostle is slipping my mind, but that quote I just gave you from Acts. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It doesn't say, there is no other name that I know of given under heaven by which I am aware that we may be saved. It's a categorical statement. There is no other name. So listen, you trust in Jesus, you will live. God has given us a gospel to preach to everyone, to invite all, any who will come, to that great feast. Go out into the highways and byways and compel them all to come in. I have a message of really good news for everyone here. No matter what you have done, no matter how sinful you are, as we look at this prohibition against murder today at the Sixth Commandment, you may be convicted on this point or that point, realizing you've broken God's law. You may have broken God's law here. You may have broken several of other gods, of God's laws. You may have broken them all. But listen, if you come to Jesus, you will live. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But the converse is true. If you do not believe in Jesus, if you do not trust in Jesus, you will perish. And perish, biblically, doesn't mean annihilation. Like you do, They just put you six feet under, you lose consciousness, your soul dis- dissipates, and your body decomposes, and that's it. Perish, biblically, means to be cast out into that outer darkness where the fire does not go out, where the worm does not die, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the way the Scripture talks about it. And if you do not come to Jesus, you will die. And so to propagate the lie that there is salvation to be found in anyone other, to propagate the lie that being a good enough person is okay, to propagate the lie that being a sincere person is okay, to propagate the lie that in any other so-called God, in any other so-called Savior, salvation may be found, this is soul murder because it lands people in that outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. To embrace any other path is soul suicide. It's to embrace poison. It's to fall upon a sword. You fall upon Christ and you find that He catches you. You fall upon any other so-called Savior and you find that it's a sword that runs you through. To, look, to preach anyone else, to proclaim anyone else, to rest your soul on anyone else, is soul murder or soul suicide. Listen, even if someone preaches to you the Ten Commandments 
as a means by which you may be saved. That's soul murder. To rely on the keeping of the Ten Commandments for salvation is soul suicide. Because again, as I said at the beginning, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Cursed is everyone who relies on works of the law. That's what the Apostle tells us in Galatians. These are Bible verses. You wouldn't know it based on what some churches these days are telling you. But these are Bible verses. The Bible says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Quote, The Bible says, Cursed is everyone who relies on works of the law. Quote, So if you go in a church and they're telling you, rely on works of the law. You want to be justified? Obey God. And He will accept you. Soul murder. Soul suicide. That's not Christianity. Christianity is recognizing that what the Bible says is true. That the wages of sin is death and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, therefore, because sin earns death and all have sinned, everyone has earned death. That's all you merit, is death. But God sent His Son into this world to live a law-keeping life for sinners, to merit salvation for sinners, to merit righteousness to give to sinners. And God sent His Son into this world to die on a cross to bear the punishment for sin, the death that sinners deserve, in order that He could credit His death, give His death, as it were, to sinners. Only by stopping trusting in yourself and your own law-keeping and by beginning to trust in Christ and His law-keeping, that's the only way you can be saved. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So to believe anything else is, or to propagate anything else is soul murder or soul suicide. Now, we may have murdered in some of the ways that I talked about already. But in order to drive this point a little bit more, I want to talk about two other ways that we have committed murder. One is the fall of Adam into sin. You committed murder when Adam sinned. Let me explain that. The Bible tells us that when Adam sinned, all sinned. He acted as a representative of you and God counts it as if you sinned. You might say, well, hang on a second, whoa, that's not fair. Two things. One is, you didn't make the rules. You just got to play by them. That's what God says. Romans chapter 5, you can go read it. God says that when Adam sinned, he counts it as if you sinned. Secondly, you're saying, well, that's not fair. Because you're presupposing that put in the same situation, you would do something different. Which is also to call, call into question God's wisdom in appointing Adam as a substitute for the human race. Your logic underneath your objection is put in the same situation, I would have done something different. Which causes, calls God's logic, God's reasoning, God's wisdom into question. That if He would have only appointed you as a representative of the human race instead of Adam, things would have turned out a lot different. Which is to think more lowly of God than you ought, and if you're thinking more lowly of God than you ought, by implication, you can't do that unless you do this. Thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. And so that, that's what's going on um, when, we've, when the fall happened. God said, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam ate of it. He died. We died. Everyone died. And we are responsible for that. Who is responsible for the corruption and the punishment of the human race that was incurred because of sin? Biblically, we can say Adam. And biblically, we can say you. 
me. Biblically, we can say Adam's responsible for that. Biblically, I can also say I'm responsible for that. We are. The human race is. And every member of it. We are guilty before God. And we have brought ourselves death. The second instance of murder that I want to highlight is the crucifixion of Christ. Now, none of us are 2,000 years old. So none of us literally crucified Christ Jesus. But we do need to think, would we have crucified Christ Jesus? Or are we, do we approve, do we condone His crucifixion? And the answer to those questions is yes. The, the unbeliever would have and does. There was a time when I would have crucified Christ Jesus. There was a time when I condoned His death. If you're a Christian, the same can be said of you. There was a time. If you're not a Christian, it can be said of you now. You might object again and say, well, that's not fair. I've never entertained malicious thoughts toward Christ Jesus. I respect Him as a teacher. I have high thoughts of Him as a religious leader. I would not have crucified Him. I don't approve of that. I don't hate Christ Jesus. Well, Psalm 2 talks about the world's response to Jesus. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, which is the Christ, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the way that the world feels about Jesus. We don't want His bonds. We don't want His cords. We resent His claim upon our life. Scripture tells us elsewhere that people did not receive Jesus because they loved the darkness rather than the light. Now just think about the first four commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Let me be real clear with you. You ought to, as every knee one day will, bow before Jesus and ascribe to Him the glory that is due His name. Your tongue ought to, as every tongue one day will, Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, your affections ought to be warm, hot toward Christ Jesus. You ought not to be pulled in a million different directions in your life. You ought to have a heart that loves Christ Jesus. You ought to have a heart that can't get enough of Him. We sing that song sometimes. Fairest Lord Jesus. Fairer than the fairest of 10,000. That ought to be your heart cry toward Jesus. He ought to have your affections. When I behold the wondrous cross, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This is what your heart response ought to be toward Christ Jesus. Is it that? Unbeliever, be honest with yourself. You resent that. You resent that Jesus wants that much of your heart. The, the second commandment. No images. 
We talked about how this means not only setting up blocks of wood and stone, but also mentally creating a God of our imagination. Be honest, especially unbelievers. Christians too, be convicted here, but unbelievers especially. I'm trying to show you that you don't love Christ Jesus. In fact, you, you hate Him. You resent Him. You like to think of Jesus a certain way. That Jesus you can live with. That Jesus you can deal with. But the Jesus of the Bible who says that there is no other name given under heaven by which you may be saved. Who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Jesus who says, if anyone loves his father or mother or son or daughter or brother or sister more than me, he's not worthy of me. The Jesus who said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself daily and follow me. That Jesus you resent. You resent how he makes such a total claim upon your life. Why won't he just leave me in peace? To just enjoy my life and do my thing. Why is he always calling me to drop everything and follow him? Or the third commandment. Not to take God's name in vain, to respect, to reverence. Unbeliever, you have small thoughts of Jesus, which is why you go through much of your life, throughout most of the week, not even thinking about Him. This is an absence of the respect that the third commandment prescribes. We ought to fear God. We ought to have grand, reverent thoughts of Him, adoring Him, bowing before Him and exalting Him. we got to get low and get Him high. You resent that that's what God expects of you. The fourth commandment, the Sabbath day. What, all day on Sunday? Worship? Morning and evening service? Are you serious? You resent... Christ's claim upon your life. Be honest with yourself. You love the darkness more than the light. You want to cast His bonds and cast His cords off of you. In that sense, think about the crucifixion as something that, though you were not actually part of it, if you could just get rid of this guy, if he was here preaching today, making these claims upon you today, you would want to silence him. That's what you functionally do with your life. So you may say you have reverence for Jesus, respect for Jesus, so on and so forth, but functionally your life, unbeliever, tells a different story. You're like a cheating spouse that says, I love you, when really your actions demonstrate hatred. So that's what's prohibited in the commandment. We've just been unpacking that in more detail ungrounded or excessive anger and any unwarranted or unjust actions or words proceeding from this anger. The opposite, as I said, is true. You shall preserve life. As I mentioned earlier, Thomas Watson tells us, we must make use of diet, exercise, and lawful recreation, which are like oil that keeps the light, the lamp of life burning. We need to educate ourselves here and pursue what is good for us. In addition to just avoiding what is bad for us, pursue what is good for us. We need to exercise. And here, moderately. I was unable to source the quote, but within the last month, I read one of the Puritans saying that we should not exercise excessively because it would leave us too tired to fulfill our other duties toward God and fellow man. Which was surprising and convicting to me. Surprising because I had never really thought about it like that, but convicting because I was like, actually, I think sometimes I do that. And so it was surprising and convicting to me, but I would ask, where's the lie? The logic's impeccable there. You go and tire yourself out too much playing sports or lifting or running or whatever it is that you like to do, that you, you, you come home and you can't take care of your family. You don't lead them in worship. You don't serve and love your wife. 
You can't make it out to church because you're too tired or too sore from what you're doing the other six days. Where's the lie? Right? First things first. But we should pursue uh, holistic well-being, preserve life as well as refuse to extinguish it. Then if we see someone in danger, we should try to help them. Not only avoid killing them, but help them if they're in danger. I told a story to the guys in the preaching workshop on Tuesday night. It was St. Patrick's Day a few years ago. I was driving with Mel. Uh, It wasn't too late. It was maybe 10 o'clock at night. But I saw a young man and a young woman just looked like they were out for a date or something. And then I saw a group of guys behind them who were obviously intoxicated and making, I don't know if they were, I was in my car, but they were making some kind of maybe crude comments or threatening comments to them. I could tell something was going on. And then one of the guys behind ran up and hit the guy in the back of the head with a beer bottle and knocked him to the ground. So I pulled over my car to the side of the road, grabbed a pipe. I told Mel, don't unlock the door no matter what happens. And I went out to try to help this guy. Thankfully, the guys behind took off running because there was about four of them and one of me. You might say, well, that's not very Christian of you. And I would say, well, actually, yes, it is. Because the parable of the Good Samaritan says that when you just leave a guy in his trouble, you're not loving him. So there's an innocent guy getting bottled in the back of the head. Christians should actually be among the first to stop. Edmund Burke says that um, all that is needed for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. So you might think, well, I don't murder. Well, yeah, but do you preserve life? This is part and parcel of the commandment as well. We need to be good men, good women that foster life, that foster the thriving and the flourishing of life. Along these lines then, along these lines, think now of the soul. We said that propagating a false religion is soul murder. Believing a false religion is soul suicide. But brothers and sisters, think about what is implicit here. We got to be taking this gospel to those who are perishing. We have good news for those who are lost. We have good news for those who are outside of Christ Jesus, who have broken God's commandments, who lie under the condemnation of the law. Freedom! Life! You want to be free from the guilt, from the condemnation? Christ. You want to be reconciled to God? Christ. You want to avoid eternal death and live with Him forever, who is making all things new and shall rule and reign in an eternal kingdom? Christ. It's not enough just to not take a false gospel to this neighborhood. It's not enough just to not take a false gospel to your family. It's not enough just to be quiet and keep from speaking lies to your co-workers. If you see a man bleeding on the side of the street, help him. And when you see people perishing on their way to hell, help them. Be a good man. Be a good woman. Love your neighbor. Don't commit soul murder. Preserve soul life. This is all wrapped up in the commandment. Care for people. Don't just not do them wrong. Do them right. Do them good. This is all wrapped up in the commandment. We're not just, we're not just loving God and our neighbor when we just passively refrain from doing the wrong things. God's commandments are not to just keep us from being bad people. God's commandments are to guide us and shape us in the becoming of good people. The law is powerless to do that. In other words, we can't just tell people change and they change. But by God's Spirit, by the strength and the power that He gives, by His help convicting us and empowering us for the work, by the motivation that we get from the Gospel. Again, when I survey the wondrous cross... That love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When we come to God's law with the motivation of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, it's the path along which we walk to becoming good people. 
the kind of people that God designed the human race to be. So don't just stop doing bad things. Don't just, don't just not kill people. Preserve life. And don't just do it with their bodies. Do it with their souls. If you had a loved one, a child, a brother, a father, a grandparent who moved away to a distant place and didn't know Christ, would you not want a church in that area to not wait for them to come through the doors and then tell them? But wouldn't you want a church in that area wherever they ended up to go to them? And if you were talking to your child on the phone or you are talking to your grandparent on the phone, wouldn't you want to hear some Christians came and visited me the other day? Or a Christian at my work talked to me about Jesus. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you feel toward that Christian, thank you. Thank you. Because my loved one is in soul trouble. And you loved them and went to them with the gospel. Do unto others, Jesus said, as you would have them do unto you. Maybe you don't care about the person across the street because it's not your brother. It's not your son. Well, it's somebody's son and it's somebody's brother. Right? Maybe, maybe you're not concerned to talk about to your coworker because it's not your grandmother. It's not your daughter. She's somebody's grandmother and somebody's daughter. Love. Not just avoid doing this, but positively love. Remember we talked about that pyramid at the beginning where the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself is at the top. The Ten Commandments is like the next level down summary. The first four talk about what it means to love God. The last six talk about what it means to love your neighbor. When we just refrain from doing something, but we don't positively do anything, we're not yet loving because love is more, the, more than the absence of hatred. Love is actually the positive doing of something to someone. So evangelism. Get that gospel out there. And believe. You're hearing the gospel today. Don't commit soul suicide. I just read this week of a pastor who I was in a workshop with in Canada last May, I believe. We were in a small group workshop. He was 43 years old. He was diagnosed with cancer this May. And I just read his obituary yesterday. A year ago, May, I was in Canada in a preaching workshop with him. Listen, you don't know when you will die. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to be real with you. You're either going to die in church or you're going to die between church services. There is no other option. So you're either going to die while you're hearing the gospel or sometime that you hear the gospel is going to be your last time. That's how it works. There's no other way. I don't know if I will be here next Sunday. I hope I will. I plan to be. I will live every day in between as if I'm going to be. You don't know either. We don't know. But you're hearing the gospel. Believe it. You may be a Christ hater. You may have walked in here this morning a Christ hater, resenting His claim on your life, not loving Him, embracing this poison that will kill you. But you don't have to leave in that state. Come to Christ even this morning. Lastly, I want to say this, and I'm going to bring it, I'm going to land it very soon. Some instances of violence are not murder, but justice. Abraco, who I quoted earlier, lists four. One is putting to death a murderer by the government. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 talks about capital punishment. If anyone sheds the blood of another, by man his blood shall be shed. This is not just God describing what will happen, but God describing what should happen. Romans 13 and verse 4, the government does not bear the sword in vain. 
He could have just said the government doesn't have jail cells in vain. But the sword indicates a, a violence. Then the killing of a lawful, an, the killing of an enemy in lawful war. Abrakul, expounding Luke chapter 3 and verse 14, says this, John the Baptist baptized soldiers, and rather than commanding them to forsake warfare, he exhorted them to be satisfied with their wages and not be a burden to anyone. So implicitly, that's in a passage where they're asking him, what do we need to do to repent? So if there ever was a time to say war is wrong, period, all war, all the time, that would be it. Thirdly, inadvertent manslaughter. If you kill somebody by accident, that's not the same thing as murder. Uh, If you were driving safely and responsibly at night or something, and somebody with dark clothes just sprints out of the woods in front of your car and you kill them, that's not murder, the way that it's prohibited here. Obviously, that'd be a sad situation, but you don't need the extra guilt that you murdered someone. Then fourthly, the slaying of one's neighbor out of self-protection, or I would say out of protection of others as well, which we kind of already talked about a little while ago with the Good Samaritan. So Thomas Watson says this, the citizen does injustice when he takes up the sword, the government does injustice when they put it down. You understand that? Sometimes, Sometimes taking up the sword is the wrong thing to do. Sometimes not taking up the sword is the wrong thing to do. So murder doesn't prohibit all of that use. Now here's what I want to say. And this is where we're going to finish. If God did not take up the sword, it would be the wrong thing to do. Let me state that the other way. God taking up the sword is the right thing to do. There was a God in heaven who did not punish, who did not follow through on what He says, who did not enforce what is right, then we would have a bad, lying God in heaven. So for God to take up the sword, as He says He will, against evildoers, against those who are unrepentant, against those who are outside of Christ, this is good. Which means, and again I want to circle back around to the gospel here. Which means this. If you rely on what God owes you, on what you deserve, you will get God's sword. But if you rely on Christ Jesus, if you rely on Christ Jesus, you will be spared God's sword. And that doesn't mean that God has forsaken justice in fact quite the opposite the cross is the means by which God can justly forgive sinners because he poured out upon Christ Jesus the punishment that sinners deserve for our sin so that the demands of the law are satisfied in that respect and he exacted of Christ he received from Christ the obedience that sinners owed him so that justice is satisfied in that respect. So that the demands that the law makes are satisfied in that respect. And so what Christ Jesus came to do was not to offer an alternative to justice. But what Christ Jesus came to do was to fulfill justice as a substitute. So that people don't have to experience justice in themselves. So justice is either this. You are justly punished for your sins because you have not offered to God the obedience that He requires. Or, Christ Jesus is justly punished for your sin as your substitute and God counts you as righteous because Christ Jesus has justly earned righteousness for you as your substitute. So that's how it works. Justice demands that all who are outside Christ die and go to hell and suffer eternally for their sins against an infinite God. But justice demands, and this is good news, justice demands that the one who lived a life of perfect righteousness 
and who died a sin-bearing death. And all who are attached to Him, all who are in Him, justice demands that they are in good standing with God. Because for His sake, through Him, all of the demands of the law have been satisfied. So in Christ alone, there is no other name. In Christ alone, our hope may be found.